Okay, everyone, are we ready to start? Um, I think before we introduce the final speakers for the afternoon, um, there was that competition and that lucky draw that was going on at the Deloitte stand. So there's a couple of people's, um, people whose names are going to be read out. I just apologize in advance if I mispronounce a name or surname. Um, and if you are here, please just indicate, put up your hand, and then um, after the last session, please just go to the Deloitte stand to go fetch your prize. Um, so, Blessing Munodawafa. Blessing, are you here? Blessing? Okay, perfect. So, we've got our first one. Please, afterwards, just go get your prize at the Deloitte stand. Um, Sonam Gosai. Number two. Swangaliso Banda. Okay, three. <laughs> Adriana Cecilia Bleeker. Is she here, Adriana? Okay, no. Um, Richard Carter. Also not here. Pride and Kube. Okay, we've got Pride is here. Um, Ranti Motapu. Um, Ranti, you won a prize in the Deloitte Lucky Draw after. <laughs> Afterwards, please just go collect it at the Deloitte stand after this session. Cleopas <laughs> Chitotombe. Um, okay, great. Cleopas. Andile Gumede. Um, Monique Hoffman. Monique, are you still here? Peter Carswell. Okay, still here. Congratulations. Edwin Mpofu. Cornel <laughs> um, van der Merwe. And I think that is it. So, congratulations, everyone. Please go collect your prizes afterwards at the Deloitte stand. Um, then, just before I introduce the speakers, please remember to vote on the polls and the questions and to rate all, all the presentations as well. So, next up, we've got Lukas Ehlers and Schweb Gur, who's going to speak to us about the future of actuarial work. Lukas is a senior manager in the short-term insurance practice of Deloitte Actuarial and Insurance Solutions. He has more than eight years' experience and primarily specializes in short-term insurance and healthcare pricing. He also has extensive experience in reserving, product development, and risk management. He has recently increased his involvement in the fields of actuarial modernization and workforce transformation. Then Swab is a manager in the short-term insurance practice of Deloitte as well. He joined in 2012 Stratov University and has more than six years' experience in short-term insurance with a focus on reserving, capital, modeling, and regulatory compliance. He manages a team consisting of software developers and actuarial analysts as well, working on the exemplar reserving software platform. He's built several bespoke actuarial models for insurers offering niche insurance products. He's also worked in several non-traditional actuarial spaces, including the valuation and pricing of motor plans and modeling telecommunications networks. Thanks, guys. We look forward to it. I haven't started speaking yet, so you guys are kind of jumping the gun. Uh, and probably it's worth pointing out that the presentation is actually very badly titled. 
Uh, and I actually just realized this watching it now, so sorry about that. Because it's not actually the future of work, it is actually the present of work, or at worst, the near future of work. Uh, and I do realize I'm standing in between you and drinks, and I also only have 30 minutes to speak. So we're actually trying to going to keep this brief, and we're going to try to keep this light. Uh, but the point that I want you guys to walk away here with is that things are going to get better for us. It's not going to get worse, right? And the reason why we actually think that things might be getting worse is because we're kind of in the middle of a fourth industrial revolution currently. So this one is a scary one, uh, as most fourth movies are. It's worse than the sequels, because this one will actually impact us as professionals. This one is not fueled by any manual labor. It's actually fueled by automation, and it's coming after our jobs as professionals. So it's fueled by robotic process automation and machine learning, primarily. So this is a bit of an old slide. It was made in 2015. And I decided to put it up just to see how well we actually stack up to this experience. So the prediction in 2015 was that in 2017, most large businesses would have Im uh, embedded RPA technology into their business. So what I can tell you is that I know that most of the banks, or at least the large banks, have embedded this technology into their processes. And most large insurers are trying to play around with this process as well. And then we're seeing a rise in the fintech players that are solely operating by using this process. Then this technology will be ubiquitous in all insurance companies by 2020. So I think that may be a bit of a stretch, but I think definitely by 2020 to 2025, all companies would probably be using some form of RPA. And then finally, machine learning will be ubiquitous in all insurance companies or in all companies by 2020 about or 2025. And for insurance companies, that's not actually really a stretch. So I know um, the, the previous speaker mentioned that machine learning is this fancy Go chess playing robot. It can be, but it's just fancier statistics. And we already use machine learning a lot in our day-to-day -day life already. So I don't think that we really need to worry about this one. This is something that we can naturally adopt. But this is not really comforting when we know that this is gunning for our occupation. This is going to disrupt how we operate. So maybe to find some comfort, we can look at what the impact was of the first three industrial revolutions. The first one starting out being a change from manual work and manual production techniques into to mechanical production techniques, where we basically saw a increase in the average income for employees unexpected result, especially since a lot of the guys were really resistant to the change, and it made them more money in the long run. And it also increased the population in the UK due to better farming techniques and actually more supply of food. So the second industrial revolution basically changed from just manufacturing little things in little bits to mass, mass manufacturing things at a large scale. So again, is a lot of guys manufacturing individual things, not happy about the process, but it actually created more jobs in the process. Uh, because what happened is you actually started seeing factories pop up and developing new products that weren't being, being manufactured before. So these products included the essentials that we know today. So your light bulbs, your diesel engines, washing machines, refrigerators, cars, airplanes, all of that came out of the second industrial revolution. So still not a really a bad thing going through one of these revolutions. And then finally the third industrial revolution is where we had scalable computer power becoming available to the masses. And this really affected clerical jobs. So if you think of your bank tellers, they've pretty much disappeared. But this also brought with it the internet. It brought with it globalization. It brought with it an outsourced ability, which is really good for a developing economy such as ours. 
So that's not really that bad, but also the one thing to keep in mind that this industrial revolution is the one that hit us first as well. Because if you're not quite sure how you were impacted by the third industrial revolution, is you need to ask yourself when last did you actually manually cal calculate a rating table? It hit us. And it's not a thing that it said, okay, well, actuaries are now going away. We're still here and we're growing and we're doing things that are more advanced than we did in those days. So I'm still not worried about it. But you still have that bit of uneasy feeling about the whole process. So if we consider a bit about the, the things that are changing in our, in our environment, right? The first one is technology and we'll touch on that a bit later as well. But we're changing as individuals, right? If you look at the current workforce construction, we have four generations now in the workforce. We've got our baby boomers, Generation X, the millennials or Generation Y, and Generation Z that will now be coming into the, to the workforce. And the interesting that's going to, thing that's going to be happening in the next couple of years is the baby boomers are going to exit the workforce. And the significance of this is this is the only generation that didn't adopt technology quite quickly. Generation X was the first adopters of technology. They grew into technology when it, or technology became exposed to them when they were adolescents. Millennials, we grew up with it. And Generation Z is completely fluent in it and they don't know anything else, right? So given that this is our approach and how we know about and what we think about efficiency and how things can be done, the way we approach business problems will also change and the way we demand that our businesses interact with us will also change. So businesses are typically a bit longer, take a bit longer to adapt to technological changes, faster than we do. So if you think, you're probably using a machine learning algorithm every single day. When you're choosing on Apple Music what you want to listen to, or even if you Google search, it will tell you something that a related search that you could do as well. So you're exposed to it every single day. And you want that kind of functionality in your business as well. But there are some some hurdles and obstacles for businesses to clear is you have a myriad of different providers that all need to go through the business's policies and processes to be cleared so that you can actually start using this as well. Uh, and then finally is public policy usually lags way behind. But it's not something worth ignoring. So whatever technology or approach that you're thinking about is don't just kind of do it blindly and exploitative. Is you need to ask yourself at least a bit Will this hold up when the regulator gets involved? If you're going to use something that starts exploiting people, is you can bet that public policy will change and you will probably not be able to do that in the future. So rather may try and get a sustainable solution in, in earlier and quicker. Okay, so this is the things that driving the, the, the things that are driving the change. So we need to ask ourselves then, well, will we still have jobs in the future? So there's three things that you need to consider if you want to answer the question of whether you still will have a job in the future. And there's three aspects that a, a research study that was done at the University of Oxford found to be predictive of whether you can be automated out of your job. So the first thing that you need to consider is social intelligence. So basically your ability to interact with other people and read what other people's uh, responses would be to the tasks that you perform. So low social intelligence would require from a dishwasher is you literally just wash the dishes and then you tell somebody everything is clean and that's it. But public relations, I think that's how dishwashing works. I haven't done it in a while. Uh, <laughs> but high social intelligence is guys with uh, relating in the PR field, like the public relations field, is they actually need to know is what every word of theirs that they're saying means and how it will be interpreted. The second thing that we need to consider is the creativity involved in a, in a job. So if you think of a court clerk is the only ability that they really need is 
the ability to distinguish between voices, the ability to write down what people are saying, and the ability to type fast. A lot of the technology already exists to, get, to automate this work entirely. But if you look at a fashion designer, is they actually need to take different concepts and different ideas out of different spheres and combine it into something that's original and that's also quality. And you could brute force this approach, but you can end up with a brute force approach with millions of different combinations, and somebody would still need to sift through them. So it becomes difficult uh, to automate something the more creativity is needed. And then finally, it's the perception and the ability to manipulate your environment. So this is basically is can you react to things that are happening around you in real time and make informed decisions if, even if you haven't seen something before. So if you think a telemarketer, is they're reading the script, uh, probably just the first 10 kind of sentences before you hang up on them, and then you've got a surgeon that actually needs to know about everything what's happening around him and not just one dimension that it might be considering. And if you look at these three spheres, is we should be fairly safe. Like in terms of social intelligence, I think a lot of us would just prefer the dishwashing approach is let me do my job and like leave me alone. But the problem is we actually perform a very crucial and central role in an insurance company. We need to be involved with most of the stakeholders in the company to ex in order to explain what we are doing, what decisions we're making, and how their behavior in fact impacts us and vice versa. Similarly, creativity is every single day you get a new problem and every single day you will get a different answer as well. And then finally, perception and manipulation is the external environment is so important to us that we actually included it into the actuarial control cycle. So this should say or indicate that we should be fairly safe. And from the stats, we can actually see that this appears to be the case. The chance of us being automated out of our jobs are about 25%. Like, it's not as sneaky as the sneaky software developers that have put themselves at zero, the architects of this nightmare, but, <laughs> but we're safe-ish. Uh, but the problem is, if you look at a lot of the other jobs in the insurance industry, these have a very high possibility of being automated away, and we're already seeing this happen with a lot of the fintech companies coming through. So, at least we can say we will still have jobs, but I don't think we can really make the argument that our jobs are still going to look the same in a couple of years' time. So if we consider like a hypothetical example of how we spend our time, is we spend a little bit of time at the start thinking about our problems, uh, then a spend a lot of time trying to fix our problems, and then we spend a little bit of time at the end trying to, to wonder about our problems again and how we're going to use our results. And this is actually the good news, because theoretically, if we actually lean into automation and we insist on only doing the jobs that require social intelligence, creativity, and perception and awareness of our reality, we should be, a lot more, be doing a lot more thinking and a lot less doing, right? And this is what we think will happen, is with automation and a lot of the new technologies and methods that are coming in, we think we'll spend a lot of our time actually thinking about our problems and finding things that we can solve and fix and a lot less time actually doing it, and then a lot of time implementing those results again and communicating the decisions to wider stakeholders, doing the things that we actually studied for, with other words, right? So this is all theoretical, and to make it a bit more practical, we did like a very quick snap survey in the office just to figure out how much time our, our analysts spend on various tasks and then also how much they enjoy it. Does this look accurate, by the way, more or less? Spend a lot of time on your data, about 30%. Uh, you then spend about another 30% on your modeling uh, and about 25% on actually communicating the results to external stakeholders. Does this make sense? Just a nod? Okay, cool. Uh, 
So we actually do a lot of things that, that don't require a lot of thinking. And if we actually look at how much people enjoy each one of these talks, something interesting starts popping up, is we don't like data work. Does somebody actually like data work? I know of one person in the team, but I'm not going to point him out. Uh, but we actually don't like it. It's monotonous, it's routine. You don't really apply your mind there. You don't actually add value to the process in it because it's, because it's just something that needs to happen. But you do really enjoy the modeling, the hypothesizing, the communication of the results, and arguing it between different parties because that's where you actually start thinking about the consequences and you're actively involved in the process. And it's a cognitive process. And then report writing, the average is a bit deceiving because it would suggest that we're indifferent to it. But generally when we did this is guys either really liked writing the report or they hated writing the report. And this is where you need to start understanding with, with what's the process involved with the report writing and dig it a little deeper. The guys that like writing the report are still doing analysis. They're still trying to figure out how can I get my point across the most clearer. If they're trying to find something else is why does this happen? They're still digging while they're writing the report. And the guys that hated it have the approach of they've already communicated everything that they needed to to the guys using the outputs of the model and they're adding nothing new to the process by writing the report. It's just a formality. Okay. So, the problem that we currently face with, or faced with, is that actuaries do all of this. So wear the nice royal red there, or maroon. Uh, so we do all of this, and this is not going to stay the case going forward. So if we explore a bit the current working structure, or the team construction of like an actuarial team, is you usually have your chief actuary at the top, you might have a corporate actuarial or balance sheet management team that's mostly actuaries. And then your pricing analytics team is probably, probably going to start to change. So the red guys being the actuaries and the blue guys being statisticians and data scientists. And this is already happening in insurers, is a lot of them are opting to hire statisticians in lieu of hiring actuaries. And to an extent, we can feel threatened about this, but it's also a natural synergy that, it, that, that evolves through this kind of hiring practice. Because our skill sets are complementary, is we often don't have the same skills. We have enough of an understanding of the basic foundations that we can understand each other, but we're specialists in different areas. So if you look at statisticians, is they're less expensive than us, they don't take study leave, they're really... <laughs> it's true. Uh, so they're less expensive, they've got better technical knowledge, and there's a larger talent pool available to us. Right? And they're really good at what they do there. But they don't understand the business and they don't know exactly necessarily what's the consequences of what they're modeling. And that we do really well, is we have very good business understandings. We have a very good understanding about risk. And we can keep up with what they're learning. So instead of actually having the actuary doing work that they don't quite know how to do, is you can focus them on finding areas where statisticians can, can apply their craft more effectively and then communicate those results through the business and harness their own skills, our specialization, uh, to a greater extent. And then what we're also starting to see is a support layer that op operates across multiple teams. So it's typically less skilled guys, that maybe analysts that don't have as many exams. It can be VAC students. It can be anybody who has a basic understanding of some of the data stuff that are there to support the actuarial guys and they're there to help with the data work instead of the actuaries and the more skilled and expensive resources doing that. So, you just don't have, you don't just have uh, resources in your company, you also always have your friendly consultants, and you're more than welcome to picture me with this lovely background. Uh, but, 
we are not alone. We have the crowd. So this is basically a mechanism for you to reach a millions and millions of people with different skills. But, and it's fundamentally going to change how you can interact with different people. Right? So if you think of the crowd, there's basically three ways that you can think of it, or three different components to it. So you have a crowd collaboration mechanism, which sounds fancy, but it's just Wikipedia. Uh, and if you want a bit of more of a relevant example, is if you think about how the FSB, way back when now, the Prudential Authority, decided to tackle SAM, is they had a lot of industry involvement in it. Uh, and with that is they developed a framework that would be more suitable for, the, for our industry rather than just a copy, copy and paste from Solvency 2. Then you've got crowd competition. So this is Kaggle, uh, for example, is where you kind of have a problem and you put a monetary amount on it and you just say, you know, whoever gets it can, can get the money. And the nice thing about this is often the guys start changing their approaches once they see they've got an idea that might not work and they start looking for people who have complementary ideas to theirs and they merge their approach and give you an answer that you wouldn't just get from one specific person. So you really create a community and an idea of collaboration in this, this ecosystem. And then finally, it's crowd labor, which is, I think, the one that we're most, most uh, familiar with. So this is basically Uber and Uber Eats. So microtasks, um, basically three little components of uh, crowd labor. So microtasks, it's Uber and Uber Eats. Is you, don't, you need somebody to do something really, really specific uh, and that is clearly defined. And then you have miso task is, again, something that's really, really specific, but the guy needs some basic skills around it. So this is where you need somebody to maybe do your data checking or data capturing with it. You need computer skills to do it. And then macro tasks, which is very much similar to how consultants currently operate. So it's actually giving somebody a reserving process and asking them to complete it. So it needs to be undefined and generally fairly loose. So with any external technological thing, we actually need to think about what's the benefits and detractions of it as well. So if we think about the benefits, it's really you have access to a wide variety of people with a different range of, range of skill set. And it's access to guys that you wouldn't necessarily, necessarily be able to reach. You have flexibility in terms of changing the size of your resources as you need it. So if you need a lot of resources to do a lot of manual work, you can increase your, your capacity very quickly and then reduce it again once you're finished with your tasks. And you also get the synergies through a collaborative approach. The detractions that you need to be careful of is it's still fairly new. It's, 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 there's no standard platform and no standards for quality assurance in there. So you really do need, need to still do your due, your, diligence or your due diligence about who's actually doing the work for you. Are they qualified to do that work for you? Do they have professional indemnity if you're putting something really major into, uh, into their court? Uh, and also, what's their, what's their attitudes toward data protection and data privacy? And how do they store your data and when do they delete it? So these are very important questions, not just for if you're using the crowd, but just external providers in general. And you still need constant management of the process. It's not a set it and forget it thing. The crowd won't just come into your building and then try and look for work. Is You need to be very clear in what you want them to do. And the final thing that you really need to consider is how this impacts your existing staff. So a lot of us are already kind of skeptical about using external providers, especially inside companies, because we're scared that they'll get the fun work and we will be left with the data cleaning. So just consider is how you want to engage your existing staff in these kind of problems as well. So at least give them first pass on the work that they really enjoy doing. And if they can't do it, you can get them to engage with the crowd to find a solution. But just be careful that you don't create the perception that you won't be doing the fun stuff anymore. Okay, so this basically covers the people side. 
and Shweb will now take over on the technology side. Thank you, Lucas. Uh, sorry. Okay, so to maybe, uh, as a framework to look at technology, let's go back to what we enjoy. So we don't really like the data work, but we enjoy the model, the, the model work, the analysis, and we're kind of indifferent to report writing. So technology can help us because RPA and data wranglers will help us uh, reduce the time we spend on data. Right? We also have uh, natural language processing, which is pretty much a machine that can read, so that helps us with data extraction. We also have natural language generation, which will help us write our reports. I mean, we're kind of indifferent to report writing, but that's definitely a benefit. And on the analysis side, we have new toys to play with in the form of machine learning. So overall, I think the, the change is positive. We'll, we'll enjoy our jobs a bit more. So to take you through each one of these, let's consider a standard process. Uh, if you have to, uh, whatever it might be, reserving, you'd send a few emails requesting data from different people. Um, once they reply, you'll copy all of the attachments into a folder. You'll then run your SQL queries. Along the way, you'll have to click a few buttons to make sure it runs properly, uh, move it forward, take that data, put it into a folder. Then you start combining your files, searching and replacing for nulls, looking for duplicates, all of that kind of fun stuff. Um, and then you uh, merge the two files, transform it, and then put it into your modeling software, and that even might be a bit of effort. So this is where RPA and data wranglers can really help us. And the technology on the side has progressed to such an extent that you can set up this entire process without knowing any programming. Right? So that, that, that makes it really easy. So what the RPA would do is it would send the emails for you. It would copy all of your attachments. It would then kick off, uh, it would run the SQL queries for you as well, um, copy the output of that. It will then kick off your data, rank, data wrangler, which will do all of the data cleaning for you. It will make sure, it will transform it, get it into a format that's ready for your modeling or um, visual analysis software. And then it will kick off that take the data out of the data wrangler and put it into the modeling platform. Uh, obviously, there are limitations. So the RPA software will, doesn't deal well with change. So if the software you're using moves the button, you might need to update your process. But it's a visual interface, so it's a very quick update. And then, of course, somebody will have to go and set up the process. I mean, there's no getting around that. The next two software, uh, the next two tools we have is natural language process and natural language generation. So natural language processing takes structured data, structured unstructured text, and converts it into structured data. So it, it, it's great because it saves you from having to read reports and find out and find what you need from it. It will do it for you. Right? It also gives you access to data that you otherwise would have had to pay somebody to get. So. Um, this would be uh, extracting information from invoices. It will take out the amounts for you. It will even take um, each of the components, allowing you to do a price comparison. It gives you access to social media data, so you can start doing things like sentiment analysis, which helps with your lapse projections. And uh, it can look at your contracts, so you can identify where your brokers have made changes that they didn't necessarily tell you about, and find out earlier rather than finding out at the claim stage. And then we have natural language generation, which does the reverse. It takes 
structured data and convert it into unstructured text. Now, most of you are familiar with the idea of using some VBA, a few macros, taking the tables out of, your, out of Excel and putting it into a word template with, a few generic, with some generic wording. You can even put a few rules in so that the wording is broadly relevant. With natural language generation, you also have the linguistic module that goes in and changes the wording so it looks like somebody actually wrote it, like a person did. So it will vary the verbiage, it will use synonyms, it will use padding words like however, what, and, and the output that you get, you just need to review and add high-level commentary. And then finally, we have machine learning. I won't go too much into this because it has been covered earlier, but to place machine learning, you can place it within AI. It's a subset of AI. And AI is broadly, it's broadly defined, but it's anything that tries to mimic human behavior. Machine learning is an algorithm that learns from, uh, that, yeah, that learns. And it's not that complicated because if you think of, <laughs> well, it learns from data. <laughs> But I mean, a nice way to think of it is think of a solver algorithm that you run to minimize uh, your squared errors, right? It starts at a starting point and it tries multiple co uh, combinations or it tries various things until it gets to its goal. And, and that's a form of machine learning, a very simplified form of machine learning, but that's what it is. You then have deep learning, which are really complex models that work, but you don't necessarily know why they worked. Um, they're useful. Um, <laughs> so to, to understand it, it's, it's good to break machine learning into three categories, or at least that's how I understand it, is supervised machine learning where you try to estimate something, right? Whatever, it could be a lapse rate, it could be claims frequency, claims severity, right? Uh, GLMs fall in this category, so it's the one that we use most, right? But there are more complex ones, decision trees, uh, neural networks, and so forth. And then you have unsupervised machine learning, which doesn't um, try to predict anything, it just tries to find similarities in your data. So this uh, uh, use of this would be to group uh, data uh, based on similarities, similar types of data points. And, and then you have reinforced machine learning. So the other two machine learnings, if we go back to the solver example, you'd, you'd, run, you'd run it, you'd get up at a you'd get a parameterization and that's what you'd use. Reinforced machine learning teaches itself. So it reparameterizes it as it, itself as it goes along. So when you come to the more advanced machine learning algorithms, uh, the first question would be in which cases can it be useful? So for example, in, a, in fraud uh, detection, it would be useful because what you're using it for is to just flag potentials. Right? So you don't necessarily need to explain it, so you'd be okay with the black box. And also there's a lot of interactions that you don't necessarily understand, and it makes your life easier. On the other hand, something like capital modeling, maybe not, because you'd have to explain to your board why the capital is the way it is, why it's changed, what the drivers are, and it will inform other decisions into the in the company. And there'll be some areas where, there, where a hybrid approach can be used. So an example, an example would be pricing. So you'd probably still want to stick with your GLM uh, because you'd need to explain it to some extent, or I think you'd want to be able to explain your pricing. But you could find weaknesses in your pricing or even opportunities that you can exploit by then maybe using machine learning on the residuals. Right. 
so because it's the last evening, I've been very brief in that, but that's an overview of the various technologies. And, and I'm hoping you have at least a cursory understanding now. Uh, but what to do next? And I think the, the mantra is think big, start small, act fast. So have a look at the, at the research the technologies yourself. You should now have at least a lay of the land so you'll know what to dig into. And as you research it, you'll start getting ideas on what you can do. Find other people in your company who think similarly, have discussions, and then pick one or two pilots, the low-hanging fruit. Um, data is probably an easy one, but I mean whatever is troubling you. And then test it, and test it quickly. And if you fail, that's fine. Test, again, test another one or try something different. But when you do succeed, tell people. So if you build something that works, tell somebody in a different division, maybe they can use it. Tell your boss so that when you want to try something a bit bigger, it's easier to get his buy-in, right? And, and in that way, you, get, you build momentum and you can move this process along. So in, to close up, I mean, the, the, the main idea that we want to get across from this presentation is that change is happening. It's not some future concept. It's happening right now. But the benefit to us in terms of enjoyment will be positive. We'll be able to spend more time doing the things we like and less time doing the things we dislike. So overall, it's good for us, and we, we're lucky in that way. And it, it would be a good idea to stop and I imagine your ideal day, or what would you like it to look like? Pick a small task that takes you one step closer and then make that's the one you choose to make a change. So, yeah, that was the conclusion. <laughs> um, okay, so I think uh, we're changing it up a little bit, and we'll get to ask you guys a few questions today. So I, we went through them very briefly, just to give you an overview, but out of the ones you've seen or that we've discussed, that's... Okay, you guys already started. Yep. Which ones excite you the most? What was, what was okay. the final result? Machine learning. Machine learning, okay. Then RPA. Okay, next question. What component would you like to spend more time on? I don't know if you can get paid for some of these. Okay, I think we can move on to the next one because I see drinks is there and it's getting a lot of traction. <laughs> So what part of your job, not this presentation, would you do like giving up? <laughs> Look, I've seen a couple of executives, so that one might actually realize. Okay, that was successful. Oh, no, I'll answer all of these because you didn't cooperate. Uh, okay, so... So, okay, I, let's do the first one. Is, uh, how do actuarial students distinguish themselves from data scientists uh, the way to these higher-risk management roles? I guess it's tricky, and it's, it's probably a part of a problem for the wider organization as well, is how do you expose the actuarial analysts to this world as well, knowing that they're not the strongest, but also giving them the freedom to actually learn in terms of what they need to do? And it's probably worth then thinking about the hybrid approach and where do you want your actuaries to be involved and not involved. And as they pro progress in their careers, what do you want them to be doing at each one of those stages? 
Oh, knows enough to be dangerous? So when we talk about machine learning and knows enough to be dangerous, so in the normal context of the word, it's like you know, karate is you know, you know, you know enough to hurt someone. Uh, in terms of machine learning is we know enough to hurt a company and it's often our own company, is because we don't understand necessarily what exactly we're doing. It's a fancy new toy, and we've just been playing with it. And we think we've generated the results, but we often don't know what's going on under underneath the hood of it. Uh, and that can actually lead us to making some conclusions or using a model that's really not appropriate. And that can cause a lot of damage to our employers. So Deloitte is applying, well, oh, that's it. <laughs> Okay, I guess that's it then. Oh. Yeah, there's still questions. Oh, okay. That's right. Okay, guys, that's it. Please join us for drinks afterwards. And there's two polls left. Write these two guys, and then please write the conference in its totality as well, please. <laughs>